welcome to another dishcast. I'm sitting here having just gotten over that vast, ghastly flu, and now I have this hideous cold, so I apologize for the occasional sniffle and slight nasal intonation, but you know, we do what we can. Um, and these are the worst months. I hate January and February. They just go on forever. Anyway, this week, I am thrilled to say someone I've wanted to talk to for quite a while, who was kind of caught up in the news last year, Kathleen Stock. She is a British philosopher and writer. Her academic focus has long been the philosophy of fiction and aesthetics. Her latest book is called Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism. And she taught at the University of Sussex for almost 20 years until last year where she, when she resigned, and we'll get into all of that. And the previous year, she was appointed Officer of the Order of the British Empire, OBE no less, for her services to higher education. OBE for, for Americans is, 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 is a kind of preposterous title, but <laughs> nonetheless is kind of a nice way of the British establishment of saying this person has really done something to move her or his field of work. And now she lives in Sussex, my old county in England, with her two sons and her wife, who is expecting a baby next month. That's that's true. Yes. When's the due true. date? Uh, Valentine's Day. <sighs> <laughs> my nephew was born on Valentine's Day. It's a lovely day to be born. I think um, it's probably a terrible day to be born because your birthday is always overshadowed by uh, people. Yes, that's world. true. I guess and and. Uh, Going on a date on your birthday is kind of high pressure, isn't it? It's like it's even <laughs> exactly. more high pressure than Valentine's. But there is something, at least it's, it just it has, feels nice to have Yeah, a it's cute. Yeah, it's I mean, cute. it's very unlikely to come on Valentine's Day anyway, so we'll see. But Yes, who knows? Who knows? But good luck with it. And you already have two sons, so you know what this ordeal is is is, is yeah. going to be. From the inside. Let's go back to where you where you started, because that's what we always do on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Tell me where you were born what your parents did, what your childhood was like. Um, okay, well, I was born in Aberdeen, Scotland in 1972. And shortly after that, my parents moved to this small fishing town called Montrose, which is on the Angus coast, not that far away from Aberdeen. My parents, east east coast, yeah. So it's it's got the Cairngorms to the west and the sea. And so it's actually incredibly beautiful place and yeah my parents were both English and had moved up there to be Aberdeen University where they worked and they met there. My dad's a philosopher and my mum was a physiologist so I you know I spent most of my formative life well all my formative life in in Montrose but it's quite a strange I feel like a strange mixture of things my parents are English so and in 70s and 80s Montrose being English was not a great thing to be <laughs> so or be coming from English parents or speaking in a different voice so I have I have a dual accent which comes out when I talk to Scottish people sort of a, basically adopted as a mode of survival at the time is, is it really that bad was it really that bad I mean did, yeah uh, was this this is this is when Thatcher was prime minister and they regarded it as sort of an invading army well that's true it didn't Thatcher definitely didn't help and it's also Angus is it just it swings between a conservative MP and a, a Scottish nationalist MP there's there's not a strong Labour presence as opposed to the west coast where there's a Labour presence so it was there was a strong nationalist presence I don't know if that's got anything to do with it basically I had a 
pretty shit time at school and was really because you were English well because I was English because I was six foot tall because I was uh clever because I had specs you know about a million different reasons it felt like I was very very different so I didn't have a very nice time but um you know there were other compensations there's a there was a library Montrose built by Andrew Carnegie that I used every Saturday and got bought read you know tens of books every week it seemed I've just buried myself in books and eventually made friends and you know got a, got a life so that was my formative stage. that's a familiar story for a lot of us that's yeah a, I know a familiar story the cliches, for a lot of us. really yeah we don't we don't well it may be cliched but it's also true that 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 kids some kids like me, we were a little flummoxed about how to actually really fit in to a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we disappeared into books and yeah. schoolwork. And that was a way to, for me, it was a way for me to actually, I found it interesting. It was a way to get out of my current situation, but also was a, a cover for not having a social life, really, because I was scared right. of dating and scared of girls and didn't know what to do and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. Were you, was it, a, was it, a, was it, was it, was it partly because of being a lesbian or is that something, is that a, a word that you're not particularly fond of? Well, it's a word, I, it's a word I'm very fond of now, but it's a word I'd never heard of then. <laughs> so really, pretty, well, I'd heard of I heard it. I remember when I first heard it at school. I was about fourteen, and and the pejorative was lemon in Scotland, in Montrose. You know, are you a lemon? You know, it was like sort of it, kind of insulting context. So, I it wouldn't have occurred. I don't know. I was all messed up. It wouldn't have occurred to me to add add to my problems that of acknowledging uh, my sexuality at that point I had enough problems to be honest so I was just really awkward and I was actually really I mean I was like a lot of girls very keen to have a boyfriend in some kind of abstract status related sense you know I wanted to be fancied by men because I knew that was the thing that was supposed to happen so not that I was as far as I know for a long time but eventually you know, I did meet someone and married very young, uh, a man who, you know, I'm still very good friends with, but it didn't, it wasn't necessarily retrospectively. The How best young were you when me. you got married? Well, I was 25 when I got married and I was 19 okay. when I met him. So, and I'd just been off to France, I think. Yeah, I'd just been off to France for a year to live in Bordeaux and try and learn French. So I came back and I looked a bit exotic and had to tan and seemed a bit exotic. So I met, think... and I met he was a local boy. Well, that's lovely. And of course, I presume that you were really good at school, right? So, so you yeah. had some status in that respect. Well, no. And then you went to college where? <laughs> I mean, oh, okay, sorry, go, nobody, go nobody, I mean, status in, not in a way that mattered to anybody, but yeah, I was really good at school. But to yourself, maybe, and to your teachers. And to your parents. The teachers, my parents, yes, it mattered to my parents. I don't think it mattered to myself. And also then I went straight after that, I went to Oxford, where I, like no one from my school had been to Oxford for about 20 years. And I had no, you know, hot housing or preparation. In fact, I went and did a French test and I think I got three out of 30, I remember. And that, that's why they told me that I had to go to France for a year. Now it comes back to me because my French was so terrible. So. I didn't think I was brilliant and 
I and Oxford's a very intimidating place, or was for me, full of exceptionally kind of mouthy, posh, confident public school people, people that went to fee paying private schools. So although I did make friends there and I value much of the experience, I didn't again, I didn't feel particularly like I fitted in. I mean I don't Which college, by the way? Just Exeter College. In fact, so I don't know if this means anything to um American listeners, but my I was a direct contemporary at Exeter College in my year of Dominic Cummings. <laughs> he's like the most Were famous really? person <laughs> that's come out of my year. Well, yeah. he's on this. He was on this podcast only a few months ago. Oh, was he? Right. Okay. And I uh, bet you didn't mention yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> what did you have? A, did you have any fights with Dominic no, Cummings? With? Not at all. I was a joke. <laughs> no. I'm sure he doesn't remember who I am. Uh, that's the way. I'm, I'm he's very smart. Whatever you think of him, he's certainly got. A, he's got a good brain. Mm. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, sure. So, and what did you go to study at Oxford? Are you French already leaning towards philosophy? Well, I. Oh, I see. That's why you I had to get the, the translation done. Yeah, I wanted to do French. And then you couldn't do philosophy on its own at Oxford. You had to do it with something else then. I don't know what it's like now. So I threw in a bit of uh, philosophy because my dad was a philosopher and I knew vaguely. I had a feeling I might be good at it because he sort of would look quite encouragingly at me when I'd say the odd thing. And he'd kind of trained me to, I think, think philosophically, although I didn't really know it at the time. So I thought, oh, I'll try that. But it wasn't like a vocation or anything like that. And I don't even know that I was that brilliant. Actually, I was much better at French literature at the time than I was at philosophy. That's, but I'm just a weird, weird coincidence. That's what I did to French oh, and really? uh, modern history. Right. Yeah. So I also, I went, my uncle got me, a, I, I was a waiter in in Reims, actually, in northeastern right. France, should, he, should all place to learn French, to get my French up to speed. That was actually just before my my orals at the end of my Right. Well, uh, there you go. That's exactly. Degree. Um, oh, because I went back in. And I love French literature, yeah. too. Yeah. I was in What Paris French literature did you read? I know we. Well, my favorite what was. Were, Flaubert. What were your favorite authors? My, my favorite was Flaubert, without a doubt. I absolutely of course. loved yeah. Flaubert. Um, I thought he was the most funny, biting, dark, savage vision, um, which I, all of which I love. <laughs> you're, uh, you're right, uh, and just and the and the language is just extraordinary. Yeah, um, I and actually I did Flaubert too, but I also did I did Pascal and Montaigne and Montaigne. Now Montaigne's a little different because it's that's that's 16th century French, and so it gets it's it's, sure. it's, it's a little more. A little more, but yeah, what a lovely thing to grow up understanding literature in another country. Yes, um, it was brilliant, actually. It was, and it was kind of. I felt, I feel retrospectively, it was more isolated than English literature from some of the kind of pseudo philosophical aspects that seemed to be seeping in mm, back then. Mm. I did do one course on French feminist writers that was like heavily, you know, Sixou and Arigure and people like that. And I couldn't, to be honest, I couldn't understand what, what the <laughs> F they were talking about. That's always my problem, <laughs> to be honest with you. I did my due diligence with Judith Butler, and at some point I just, like, threw the thing across yeah. this room and, like, I can't, I just, I, why am I, why am I supposed to understand this? Uh, anyway, we'll get, we'll yeah, get to we'll Judith get into Butler that. later. later. Yes. Yeah. So, were... so philosophy becomes a, the, the main source of your interest and you and you you do analytic philosophy um, in in what yeah. tradition 
yeah, I would. So I was, I mean, I was doing analytic philosophy because that was what I was taught. And there isn't, there wasn't that much continental philosophy in the UK, I think back then. But I, again, I kind of, I'm afraid there's no kind of like a very clear path to where I am now. I just kind of fell into it. Honestly, the bloke that I was married to wanted to go to Leeds to be a sculptor. So, and he needed, because he needed a quarry (laughs) to work in. So I saw there was a PhD opportunity at Leeds and took it. And I'd already been at St Andrews for a year because I wanted to live in Dundee while he was at art college. So it was just sort of a bit uh, haphazard as often these things are. But then I... So what brought you to Sussex? Well, Sussex is where I got my first permanent job. I mean, the, the job market is terrible in philosophy and you just go, and it was then and it's even worse now. So you just go, I, you know, I had a temporary job in Lancaster, temporary job in Norwich. And then I got this, I was lucky to get my first permanent job in Sussex. So that's where I came. And I didn't even know where it was, really. I'd never, I didn't, I didn't really, I'd never been to Brighton, I don't think. Couldn't clearly picture it anyway. So when I arrived and realised it was like the party central of UK, I was quite happy. (laughs) It's not what I'd expected. You 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 arrived there just as the the Molly was flowing and the the dance clubs were getting going and uh, the uh, yeah. and the gays were were coming out of their yeah. hibernation. Well, exactly. I mean, that's the other aspect. Like, there's a sort of sliding doors where because I came out eventually to myself and to the world, and I do wonder, like, if I'd ended up in a permanent job in Hull or somewhere, whether that would have happened you know I don't know it's just it just opened me up to a whole new range of experiences and influences just being in Brighton. For for Americans Brighton is a, a resort town basically on the southern coast on the channel that it's actually my little hometown is halfway between London and Brighton it's it was a sort of market town uh, in the in the old days and it's always had a slightly bohemian air and it's become a sort of gay center to some extent it's it has a very different politics from the immediate environs, which tend to be deeply Tory, and it can often has been Labour. Is it? It's no longer Labour, right? It, it's a. Uh... Um, oh my gosh, Kent, <laughs> oh God, Town, Kent Town's Labour. I think there's different wards, aren't there? And there's Green okay. as well. Oh God. Don't oh yes. Me. I don't live so there anyway, anymore. <laughs> it's oh, oh good. So it's a it's a it's a slightly countercultural place. It definitely is. A, it's exceptionally countercultural place, to be honest. And, there... and it's now become. I mean, it was gay and now it's, you know, everything that's been added to the LG and the B and the T and the Q and the I is all in Brighton too. So that's its new identity. Yeah. Why did you, what was was the occasion for you coming out of the lesbian? Well, it was late, but I, my marriage had broken down amicably, like I say, but, and I had to, I've got two children, but I just reached a point where it was possible you know, it wouldn't have been possible, I don't think, psychologically while I was married to really engage with that. But anything seemed possible all of a sudden. And I I was dating. I'd signed up to like various dating websites. And initially, I just by habit ticked M. And then I just thought one day, oh, my God, I could press I could tick F. I don't know it sounds ridiculous but that's exactly what I did I ticked F went out with a girl and never looked back basically like literally never looked back literally never looked back I mean it was just it changed my life I was like oh okay now I understand everything (laughs) so but it it is it it is weird it took so long 
Yeah, but there is that moment, isn't there? When, because I was a nice gay Catholic boy and I didn't do anything until my 20s. But there is a moment when you first experience intimacy with another person. And when I say intimacy, it doesn't have to be, you know, full on sex, but just kissing or being with or holding someone of the same gender in a way that is, is, it just feels right in a way that nothing ever else did. Is that true? Yeah. I, I think it's different with women and men a little bit. I think that, I think, for example, your, your life, it'd be very hard to think of a gay man having that long experience with the wife, feeling perfectly sort of okay, if not well, right about okay. it. But then, then, Yeah, I wasn't okay. You see, okay. in retrospect, I wasn't okay. I was really unhappy, awkward and ill at ease with myself. And just like repeating a lot of rituals and habits and, you know, going along with a lot of norms because I felt I should, but I ha there was no heart in it somehow. Yeah. Which isn't to say, you know, I keep I feel very awkward about talking about this yeah. sometimes because I don't want to, you know, negate the relationship I had or any of the relationships I've had, you know, by saying anything sort of definitively well, negative about Well, you haven't them. given anything. <laughs> no, I know. I, I, just I, don't, I, I totally know. understand. It's but, awkward, and I'm English. Forgive so, me you know, for probing. <laughs> if I, I. <laughs> But I, I, if I, if I probe too far, just, just say I'm no, not talking about it and be fine. But, but yeah, I, you're right. That when I, let's, when let's... I first kissed a woman, everything about me knew. So just put it that way. <laughs> everything about me knew that that was different and to anything I'd experienced and properly erotic experience. Put it that way. Yeah, it's kind of it's something that heterosexuals never experience. I don't think. Well, I mean, I they always I don't know what they fantastic moment when they first. Yeah, maybe they do though. It's no, just... I don't. I just don't know. I don't think. But I But there am isn't one. this point at which you. That I, I I can imagine where you get a moment when you first fall in love or you first have it that you're exhilarated and you have all the limerence and the excitement that a, a gay person does. But that you suddenly discover something fantastic phenomenally different about yourself and that resonates with oneself that's an experience that i think in some ways is a yeah. kind of privilege for those of us who have to well, fight our way to that moment that's interesting. maybe yeah i think that's right i mean it did it did just change sort of restructure so many relationships not just like erotically but also socially it freed me up to be friends with men as well because i actually get on better with men <laughs> quite often than I do with women and always have, but there's always been this sort of awkward sex thing in the way, potentially at least, or some kind of, you know, I never, the boundaries are never clear, but now the boundaries are totally clear to everybody. And that allows me to just have these great intense and intimate friendships with men, which I really, really like. So it, it just changed everything. It changed the way I walked, where, how I dressed, how I, how I moved, everything. It was great. <laughs> Thank God I got there in the end. Now let's get down to philosophy and, and language. Mm. What, if I were to ask you, how would you, you say lesbian, mm -hmm. how would you define lesbian? I just mean it in um, the sense that I'm a female attracted to females, some females, you know. I don't, I don't mean any kind of, social constructionist I don't mean to suggest any allegiance to kind of view that lesbians are a particular moment in cultural history and 
that they could only be exist at a certain time. I think there were lesbians in the sense I mean it in like throughout society there always has been there always will be I just mean something really basic and I don't really care actually I'm happy to use the word to kind of reclaim the word but if somebody wants to say I'm a gay woman or a dyke or whatever they want to say it doesn't really matter if as long as they mean same sex attracted female then we're talking about the same thing well you just said something there that that I think really gets us something which is that you you just you you dismiss the idea that lesbians might have existed for a short amount of time and then yeah. disappeared because they are merely a function of the social construction of their moment and time. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel the same way about homosexuals. Mm-hmm. I feel that I can read stories about people in the past and identify the experience as, as very similar to my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is about, and there is something really quite, intimate about that, that that obviously in different eras and different times and places has been expressed and even understood in radically different ways. No one's, the idea that some of us don't, don't accept that, that some element of who we are is socially constructed is silly, not simply not true. Of course, some no, part of it is. Yeah, of course. I mean, the question is whether yeah. it's that all the way down. Yeah, exactly. and, <laughs> and that I've never been able to accept no um, I can't either a... and it comes from a I mean the idea that it's constructed sort of intellectually or socially all the way down has its has its roots in a kind of worldview that just doesn't make any sense to me that really thinks of us as rational as essentially rational divorced from our bodies separated out from the animal world I mean, whereas the thing that I assume you're talking about, I'm talking about is a kind of body meets body experience. We're animals. (laughs) We're located in uh, sensual experiences that we that we can understand across cultures because we're human, which doesn't mean that they don't have that lesbianism and being a gay man don't have different cultural meanings in different societies. Of course, they do. So we're not arguing about that. But yeah, things have gone. Or even in your own life, you know, even in your own life, mm-hmm. you were within a heterosexual construct, Grace, and it mm-hmm. took a while for you to, to change that. And so yeah. you had a different, but you were the same human being throughout. And yeah. at some level, those yeah. deep experiences are what make us human, it seems to me. And I also feel that an experience like love or attraction mm-hmm must be understandable across sexual orientations. Like I, 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 I absolutely think that, that what happens in a straight relationship is something I can understand because I love, I mm-hmm. fall in love. Uh, now it may be somewhat different, but it's some core element, that level of attraction, love, sexual, emotional yeah. dynamic is just a human thing. I think so too. I mean, I think it's there's a continuum of experiences as well from all, so all different kinds of love and familial love, maternal, maternal love and our experiences of those things in early childhood will shape our um, experiences of romantic love later. And there's something profoundly basic about it. I think it's not. And that's great <laughs> as well. I don't like it. The idea that everything is just sort of so etiolated and intellectualized it's like no it, it's we have like I, I really am a bit of a fan of 
gut feelings <laughs> you know like this instincts talk about like what we know what the body knows what you know when you feel something's not right listen to it and even if your head is saying well I've thought this through and there's no possible problem here you know you can sometimes we're animals and we smell danger sometimes or we feel things that can't be over or shouldn't be over intellectualized and don't need to be to be valuable where do you think it comes from the the, the horror at that idea that we're just we all, we are also partly animals that that our existence is partly biological partly i mean not mm. again we're not we're we're, talk, well, we're, wholly, we're talking about wholly. the complicated situation but in which this biology makes a big difference like for example i look at gay male culture and i look at lesbian culture and i ask mm. myself as far as we can generalize any more about those things mm -hmm. uh why are they different and by far the most significant thing is that over there they're all women and over here they're all men yeah. and yeah. some of the things that we associate with each are being hyped up in various ways in those communities in some ways that the gays and lesbians actually kind of are among the biggest proofs of the biology yeah. of sex by which you and mean men and women promiscuity. so you mean like do you mean yes. rampant promiscuity in the male uh, gay males and the uh... Rampant domesticity in the lesbian, and not quite so much among the <laughs> among the lesbians. Again, yeah. we're talking about massive stereotypes, and there are all sorts of exceptions, and blah 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 blah. But look, there is not a big concern about an STI epidemic among lesbians. There is that is a constant fact for gay men. Mm -hmm. And well, if you just added it up, it, it would, you know, it, it, it would be dramatically different. Yeah, I mean, the way I try and think about it is when you said we're partly biological, I think we're wholly biological. Like, but we're, the kind of creatures mm. we are, are have higher cognitive functions that allow us to make, you know, individual adaptations to our environment that aren't completely predictable. And we have, you know, we have really advanced brains that can, that make our decisions and our choices and our culture somewhat plastic. So, but there's always the base <laughs> of the body and the mind probably the brain as well interacting with the environment and so you will be able to see patterns that are to do with sex biological sex and if we forget that so you ask me why why we want to forget that why we don't want to think about that i, I think it's death anxiety <laughs> i think it's hubris i think it's a, a fantasy that we can control you know everything and we don't want to be reminded that the chaos and darkness and random chance of our existence, you know, and all of that is in the, in the natural world, you know, but uh, it, unfortunately that's where we are and we have to like, acknowledge it. It's sort of arrogance really, isn't it? We don't like to think that we don't control everything. And, and because if we didn't, then who are we? But here's the thing that as a gay kid or as a gay student or someone trying to understand themselves, when I went to books, when I went to histories, when I went to, I could find almost none that related to that experience. Mm -hmm. Everything I read, apart from, there were two, two exceptions to that. One was John Boswell, who was a wonderful professor at Yale, who wrote Christianity, Homosexuality, and Social Tolerance, where he talked about the gay experience as a human experience that he did not believe, that he could understand from the 20th century back to the you know the second bc and but the rest was all queer theory it was all based upon social constructionism it was all in ways that first of all were pretty hard to understand mm. 
mm-hmm. uh, and secondly, seemed to deny this fact. In fact, wanted to see us as simply some aspect of a an oppressive heterosexual norm that had somehow created us as a foil in yeah. order to persecute yeah. us. Uh, I mean, I, I get kind of scathing about talk of heterosexual norms. I mean, of course, there are heterosexual norms because there's a heterosexual culture and that all oh, the multiple heterosexual cultures and we have plasticity and have flexibility however we reduce we reproduce as a species through sexual reproduction with sexually dimorphic bodies you know you need one male one female you need large gametes and small gametes you need them to meet (laughs) you know and the idea that this is somehow all in our control and it's just a pernicious you know politically suspect construct is is nuts it's absolutely nuts and it is back to yeah. that kind of hubris i mean we we as homosexuals were in the minority if we weren't in the minority the species would die out unless we sort of start exactly. i mean you know there are ways of getting around it, it they're, pretty... they're not very efficient so yeah it's it's just but they will require a sperm and an egg they will they're require, require they're one always i think we're talking about pathogenesis or whatever no if that's the right word you can but you know so yes. let me just ask this this question that someone from the right might ask you which is okay so we're biological so what on earth are gay men doing i i'm 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 almost saying what i meant to say but you know putting it up their butts i mean how on earth is that natural how on earth is the impulse to actually go through the sexual act when it cannot conceivably be related to procreation how is that part of biology i, I guess this well, is it just I mean, is just, i mean it, there are there's uh, homosexual acts in primates you know i mean i don't what do they want mean by natural it doesn't mean i mean there's there's lots and lots of examples as i understand it in higher primates of copulation that couldn't possibly conceivably re- result in reproduction because the female isn't ovulating so there's there's lots of fun if you want to get naturalistic there's lots of functions of of sex that that pair bond or the enhanced community or the high paternity so that the male is more likely to be invested so you know there's there's lots of possible natural explanations of why we're like this i don't really care about them i don't get excited about them but they're there no and the ancients writing about this also saw that they they i mean for aquinas for example, he was obsessed, they were obsessed with hairs, H-A-R-E-S, because they definitely seem to show remarkably homosexual activity all the time. And so what Aquinas had to kind of figure out in his own mind was, how can this be in nature and not of nature? I mean, he, he obviously was trying to deal with a teleological mm. view of the world in which this couldn't, he wasn't, no Darwin at that point. But obviously we can find an explanation of why nature would do both. And mm. there are evolutionary arguments why that would happen as well. Does that not apply also? How do you think this applies to tran- transgender people? Like, is this in nature? It's in nature in the broad sense that we do it and we are in nature you know i don't have a particular i don't want to commit the naturalistic fallacy and think that like there's no what is in nature is this very narrow range of behaviors that are somehow idealized but i think i understand as i understand depends what we're talking about because i do think actually that trans is quite a socially constructed concept and i get quite annoyed when people say things like oh john joan of arc was trans like what, what the hell do you mean by that? But I think insofar as there's always been males and females, and there's, there's, 
undoubtedly always been males that identify psychologically more with females than with males and vice versa, or who feel very androgynous and in a no man's land or no person's land. So that is surely psychologically predictable in almost any kind of family unit or community or society and and it seems to be borne out through history now then there's different cultural ways of dealing with that feeling like what do we do with people who feel that way and what do we do with people whose bodies at the particular time are considered to be atypical for their sex you know so that's the ballpark in which I think trans comes out of the, the modern trans movement's got a particular story about that. Other cultures will have different stories about it. But yes, I think it's that impulse to identify strongly with other has always been there. Yeah, and my my general view, which I used to think is completely sane and, and didn't realize was to be contested, was that, yes, and therefore transgender people should be protected under the law, mm-hmm. should have their identity respected and affirmed. If transgender people want to be address as the opposite sex, which is obviously quite easy to see. They transparently Mm. signal that with their clothing, whatever, then it is an appallingly bad thing to misgender or to insult them and that there should be broad protections against bigotry towards towards Mm. transgender people, as I would say for gay people as well. And that's roughly where I stopped. Yeah. I mean, I think I... So I absolutely agree with you about the protections, legal protections bit. And and in the UK, something I think that often gets lost in translation transatlantically, in the UK, we have legal protections for trans people. And I have never said we shouldn't. And I've always said we should keep them. It's We're arguing about proposed reforms to those protections in the direction of self-identification. So we can talk about that later. But I think the only thing I would add there when you say trans people's identity should be affirmed yes well it depends what you mean by affirmed you see that's the problem because if we think sex is important and I do like as in it makes a causal difference to huge areas huge swathes of life medically socially religiously and so on then there are there's a tension there with affirming someone of the opposite sex in the sex they prefer to be if that means giving them access to the resources and the spaces and of the opposite sex you know there's a tension there and then when you add in male patterns of sexual violence or male sporting performance or things like that things get very murky indeed so affirmation was presented as a cost-free choice and I think many of us used to think it was a cost-free choice but what we didn't realize is that there'd be this political movement to take affirmation as you know in every context you must accept (laughs) that someone's basically changed their sex or act as if they have. Or that the only way in which you can decide if they've changed their sex is simply by virtue of their own statement. That yes. There is no objective or external way in which you could prove or yeah. disprove this fact. There's a, a concept that you bring up in your own work called because of your own understanding of fiction and of <clears throat> imagination. And you called it immersion, I-M-M. E-R-S-I-O-N, immersion, Mm -hmm. which means uh, a way in which you can enter a fictional world. Forgive me if I'm misstating this, I'll ask you to clarify, but in a fictional world, you can can accept that you can almost 
live in it. You can, you can, you can, you believe in the things that are in fiction, even though they're just words on a page. And you, you have that concept. And 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 similarly, you, I, 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 I sort of see that being reflected in your view that, for example, you can accept that the people are trans or the opposite sex, but at the same time, not. <laughs> at the same time, understand that also they're not yeah. and that that's the that's the nuance that you think is needed whereas and and is that am i am i correctly summarizing yes that point of view yes because so we're presented with two extreme poles <laughs> one of them is you know never accept that anyone's i mean except in any sense never concede ground never go along with the fantasy that someone has changed sex and then the other so that's the kind of i don't know radical feminist side or maybe religious right side or I don't know both both but not for the same reasons I mean I think it's a mistake to keep yes. those two together but on the other hand you know a lot of trans activists saying absolutely accepted at all times it's true you know never deviate from this narrative so what are we going to do we can't <laughs> so I'm pointing out we have this capacity which I think reflects in fact what many people do in this arena we have a capacity that we use in all sorts of contexts. We're probably adaptive for our species. You know, we can put ourselves in mind of non-actual states of affairs and really get immersed in them. We, it allows us to plan and to predict and to think our way through situations we'll, we'll never encounter or haven't encountered yet. It's very efficient that way. Um, so we have this capacity to immerse ourselves in fictional worlds, whether that's at the cinema or on TV or in a book or in a game with your kids or whatever. It makes it sound frivolous, but I don't think it is frivolous because it can be very serious, you know, like can spies <laughs> immerse themselves in fictions and wartime situations. You know, there's lots of contexts where it's deadly serious. And I think that's what's going on when people say, yes, you're a woman. Yes, you've changed sex. It's not pretend in a sort of, like I say, a frivolous way. And it certainly not does not imply that anyone's lying or anyone's deceived. That's the thing. So I feel trans activists quite often want to push us into this dilemma. Are you saying that I'm lying? Are you saying that I'm deceived or deluded or delusional? No, you're, you're, you're involved in the fiction too. And that's a perfectly rational capacity that we have. You act, I think a lot of people know what I'm saying here. It's just, it's become very taboo to spell it out. You know, there is an obvious difference between women and trans women that's grounded in bodies and histories of bodies and it makes a difference to capacities and all the rest of it and we know this I think to be honest we know this but it's become very taboo to say it because the thing about immersing yourself in a mm -hmm. fiction one of the darker sides is we're not supposed to mention it's a fiction or we break the immersion like just like at the cinema you're not supposed to go they're just actors because you break the immersion so We've let things get a little bit out of control, I think, and we need to bring it back in and say, this is a fiction. It might be therapeutic. It might be useful, but it's it has its limits. That's what I want to say. Present an argument that I think is often brought with respect to this particular point that you made, which is that actually there are different aspects of being a woman. And yes, one of them is absolutely chromosomes, hormones, physical being, but then there is the brain. And the argument is essentially that for some reason that we don't fully understand, the brain develops an identity of the other sex, but the body remains as, 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 as the sex that it would be observed as at birth. And if you are going to define someone's 
sex, do you pick between the brain or the genitals, the brain or the hormones, mm. uh, the brain or the chromosomes? Uh, and this is what they get down to, really, when they say, I'm in the wrong body. What they're really saying is that their brain has been gendered or sexed in a way that the rest of their body has not been. Now, could it be possible, for example, let me just talk about biology, that there might be, for example, some hormonal washes in the womb, some moments in the really rather remarkable journey we make from embryo to actually childhood that could have affected the development of the brain to actually create the self-understanding of being the opposite sex. And that um, therefore it's okay. still biological. It's biological oh, okay. because it's related to the brain. Well, look, it's all happening in the brain in a, in a gen, generous sense because it's psychological and everything's, you know, everything psychological is happening in the brain in conjunction with the environment. So that's not what the claim is that you're talking about. The claim is it's hardwired. It's somehow kind of built into the structure of the brain or the hormones at a very early stage have produced this feeling directly. And I'm afraid I don't see any compelling evidence that that's the case. And I do go through a range of supposed evidence in a bit of my book. But what does seem possible is that for some people who have anomalous gender identities, it's because they were exposed to particular hormones unusually in the womb or otherwise have sex atypical bodies but not because that sort of that background has directly given them, you know, a female brain or a male brain. What it has given them is a body that is atypical and maybe a sexuality for all I know that is atypical. But then they interpret themselves as, you know, fitting better with the opposite sex than with their own. And maybe those around them in early childhood do, too, because we shouldn't underestimate the influence of parents and other people telling you that you're more like a girl than a boy or you're more like a boy than a girl or you know or girls with things like congenital adrenal um hyperplasia which is a a, a difference of sexual development they you know they they tend to be much more muscular and they tend to be much more boisterous and have more testosterone or i can't remember now the details but anyway i know that they tend to be more boisterous in childhood play and that might put them in association in, in association with boys more than girls and then they may come to see themselves as more like boys so I think the most helpful way to think about gender identity is first of all not everyone has one and the idea that we do is just that but some people have a strongly anomalous sense a, a psychological identification with the opposite sex or with androgyny and there's a story about how they got there and sometimes it will relate to things that happened in the womb or in childhood Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it'll just come out of the blue, <laughs> you know, sometimes or it might be located in a sexual fetish, <laughs> you know, for some bits of the population. We shouldn't tell one story about this, but I'm afraid this consoling myth of the, you know, the sexed, the anomalously sexed brains in in the wrong body is not helpful. And we can't even reliably tell the difference between male and female brains in some ways. But so we'd have to do that first, then we'd have to establish that this person had the wrong kind of brain. And it's just not, you know, it's not where we are in terms of the evidence. The science, the science is not, is not showing that. As I understand case. it, no. I mean, of course, you will find what you will find is heavily politicized papers saying, you know, evidence has been found for 
the sex brain. But when you look through them, the thing is you always just have to look through them and compare them to other studies and things like that. And, and also look who funded them and, and what the political priors of the people doing the research are. Uh, when you, you said something interesting, is we don't all have a gender identity. And I, 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 that resonates with me. So for one of the questions I've always had in my head about this is, okay, what is it, how, does I, how do I feel a man? And I just, I have no idea how I know or feel I'm a man. I just, it's almost, I don't even think about it. It's, it's just not there. I'm just me. The, the maleness is somehow sort of baked in at some level to make it invisible. But it's, it's when you actually have a conflict with that, that you develop a gender identity. And the gender identity comes from conflicts, not from, the, from, for most people, it doesn't really exist. I think so too. I think that the, the best sense I can make, I mean, it depends what you've, you've got to define what gender identity is, right? So I, my best sense I can make of it is this sort of strong psychological identification with the opposite sex or with, or with androgyny. So not with your own sex. It's, I do kind of concede that maybe someone could have a gender identity that sort of corresponded to their own sex, but they'd have, what would that look like? It would have to be involve like, you know, real psychological attachment to, in your case, masculinity, or in my case, femininity, like, it would have to be a real part of who you were, maybe like bodybuilding types, or you're really into well, you know, masculinity, maybe they've look. got male... Yeah, <laughs> I could take you to a few places where the the sort of cult of the masculine. I mean, yeah. if you think of leather culture, bear culture, sure. this is in which so maybe we can say there they they've got male gender identities, but for most of us, it's not. We don't. <laughs> and, we until, don't. We just don't. I mean, until not. you talk to them. <laughs> yeah. All oh, right. Okay. Until you talk to them, then it's then then we get into what's what's called muscle Mary situation, which then becomes <laughs> a sort of am I. <laughs> well, I'm just using a term that gays use ourselves. I mean, that's my other, the other thing I say is that I think that gay people and lesbians by themselves in private are really a long way away from where this public conversation is. Yeah. And are intimidated. By, but actually, you know, because we've had to face reality pretty hard mm. up front, we tend to know who we are and what we believe and who, and, and most of it is just like, oh, we can't be mean. And, and so they let all this stuff. Yeah. But then you uh, need, without, yeah. But, but then you need to have some sort of moment in which you understand what you're, what you're actually talking about. Here's, and again, here's my worry also, because you, you said about biology plus early social conditioning or where your parents or your teachers, I was a, I was a boy that was atypical, like a lot of gay kids. I did not like team sports. I did not like roughhousing. <laughs> Horrible term they call roughhousing. I didn't particularly want to play soccer or let alone rugby, which I was forced to mm. play. I liked reading books. I even liked painting things. And I'd rather sit by myself. I tell two short stories about that. One is that at one point I was excused because I was so bloody useless at, at football that they basically said, okay, we're going to leave you off the team. You go in and read a bloody Latin book if you want. So I was inside with the girls, of course. So I do my reading and, and next to me is this girl. I remember her name. I won't embarrass her now, but she, she looked around at me and said, you sure you're not a girl? Mm. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I think so. Mm. But you could see how those questions could yeah. truly insinuate themselves. I'm I'm worried. I'm genuinely worried that gay kids mm. 
Mm-hmm. You should be. Children as long as two, three, four, five, or six are being told that they're being gay means that they're the other sex. Yeah, that's ex- exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. And it's, cu- it's showing up in gender identity clinics. That is what clinicians at the Tavistock, which is the NHS gender identity clinic here, are saying and it's what studies are showing. And also, if you look at detransitioners, you know, they're three times more likely, the girls are three times more likely to be same-sex attracted than straight. So, yeah, it's exactly what's happening, I'm afraid. Because they're being confused. And if people in authority are telling them that they're... The, they're pr- because, and this is what becomes particularly concerning to me, because they are violating gender stereotypes... Mm-hmm they are somehow not right that that they need to be corrected by putting in the other yeah. into the other sex yeah i mean that's that's the here's tragedy. my question to you yeah. kathleen why are gay people not more worried like this is these are our kids yeah these are, these are experiences we went through mm-hmm. and and this has to my mind some severe homophobic elements to it which is really hostile to gender non-conforming boys yeah. and girls who still want to maintain their sex like the tomboys and the girly and 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 the girly boys if you want to yeah. if you want to put it that way even though homosexuality spans a whole variety of other things but there are they, they tend to congregate around that mm-hmm. so this is about as bad as it could get for gay kids if they're being told this yes it is i mean uh, i know from my friends who are lesbians that a significant number of them wanted to be boys, thought they were boys, insisted on being called boys' names when they were kids, wanted to pee standing up, you know, wanted to... And their parents, I, as far as I know, in every case, went along with it because there was no cost back then. It was like, yeah, okay, you can be George. Uh, and and it, it was just assumed that this was play and it was playing with identities and it was, you know, interesting and a way of finding out ultimately where you were. But that is far from where we are now because now we have teachers and other educators and family members rigidifying this narrative and saying that just exactly that little narrative you gave me earlier, it's something in their brain, it, you know, it, they're stuck like that, it's essentialized this, and it's, it's potentially, it could be homophobic and quite often it is a kind of latent homophobia because it's very unacceptable to think that you have a boy that likes boys. It'd be easier to have a girl that likes boys or vice versa. It could be all sorts of things. There's history of trauma in a lot of these children. There's autism in a lot of these children, like nearly 50%, or well, it depends on the study, but around there. So there may be problems in working out categories, you know, for the child even. And if you read, if you immerse yourself in the hideous world of gender identity literature for kids, which I had to to write my read my sorry, write my book, yeah. it's all for parents, like how to how to help your child discover their emerging gender identity. It is as basic as saying that, you know, if they like if the boy likes girls' toys or or the girl likes to roughhouse maybe this is a way of their gender identity emerging. There's even like in Britain, there's one document coming out of Stonewall that says that pre-verbal children can express their gender identities and you should be on the lookout for it to see, you know, where it is. So this would just be nothing more, as I say in the book, than the projections of the parents or the onlookers. You know, it could be nothing more than that because the child hasn't got a clue what you're talking about. I mean, they barely know anything about the world at this stage. 
no, if someone if someone had said you're gay to me when I was four, I would have had absolutely no way of understanding yeah. what the hell that was. It, it 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 wouldn't mean anything to me. But at the same time, it's true that transgender people will tell you that they knew from the earliest age that they were the other sex. Well, they'll tell and, you that, yeah. and they did not confuse. It. Well, they didn't know <laughs> you that. Think though, now, did they? Or now, Kathleen, you you you're not saying they're lying, are you? I mean that that's I'm saying just... that they are not. They are immersed. The best way of describing it is they're immersed in a fiction because if they really had believed they were opposite sex, they wouldn't have had to have an operation. You know that there's it's they're just it's just words to massage something. Now, what I do think is true for some is that they had a strong feeling of being different. They had a strong identification with the opposite sex. Like I keep saying, it's not, this isn't like, we want to make it something occult, but it's not that occult. It's just a, it's a, it's a psychological identification strongly with something else. And you really want to be like that. And you long to be like that. And you want to be accepted by them. And you don't like what you are. And it's, it's a phenomenon that manifests itself in other contexts other than sex and gender. But so we should For example. I think like identifications with, I mean, this is going to sound, but at the adolescent level, identifications with pop stars, like obsessive fandoms, you know, like longing to be noticed by your favorite star. Like, lo I don't know, it's, it's in the realm of desire and, and it's nothing wrong with it. I'm not trying to pathologize it. In fact, I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to disassociate it from medical pathways and fertility, you know, ruining your fertility and getting rid of your uh, reducing your bone density and things like that which will happen if you're on uh puberty blockers and then cross-sex women so we're sending the, the this scariest thing scariest thing that 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 phenomenon presented to me which i'd never really thought through is that a child uh before puberty is put on blockers and then put on sex hormones and then let's say it's a boy who's put on sex hormones uh, estrogen and testosterone blockers etc cetera, etc cetera. and then because they don't go through the puberty as a as a male they never develop the sensitivities mm -hmm. around in the penis in the gland that that, that creates sexual orgasm mm -hmm. and and in refashioning or inverting the 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 penis if it's a baby penis into a baby vagina you lose sexual feeling altogether in other words we're asking kids before they've gone through puberty mm -hmm. before they even know what an orgasm is mm -hmm. to for forego an orgasm for their entire lives because their gender identity is more important and i i just can't get my head around it i can't I, either I, I, I can't. it sounds fantastical i'm sure some of your listeners just can't believe it because and that's what, and actually that works against us because we keep trying to say it and they're like, no, 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 this is completely grotesque. This couldn't be the case, but I'm afraid it is the case. And, you know, they, there's lots of evidence that most of these children would desist that once, you know, their prefrontal cortexes haven't even grown in properly. They've got lots of life to live and experiences to have. They've barely erotically touched another human being if they have at all. <laughs> and yeah, and it's and the, on the female side, mastectomies, having your ovaries removed, hysterectomies. It's its just shocking. I don't know how we're letting it happen. I'm tr we're, we're trying, aren't we? But somebody's got to take control of this. So why do you think we have lost this? Why do you think this has taken mm -hmm. off? And why, for example, in, in the UK, there really has been become 
a, a debate about. Well, I think we can call it a debate. It's, yes. I, I want to get into the fact, and we haven't talked about it because you've talked about it so much, mm-hmm. but we call it a debate, but it's a debate in which someone like you who take a particular position mm. will be, what's the word, besieged essentially by violence, threats, obloquy, ostracism from your own peers who who you know must respect well, you and have my respect. peers didn't make violent threats towards me <laughs> i would have to stress no, but yeah but they, they signed, did they... but they signed yeah they signed letters that sided with your the the people who were doing that to you they weren't justifying it no. but they sure as hell didn't stand up for you oh, yeah. no 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 well they don't they think i'm profoundly misguided bigoted they think i'm actually a gender conformist in some way i uphold the patriarchy some way it's all a bit vague but you know they've really fully bought into the idea that in in denying the reality of biological sex we're you know you're doing something noble and radical and and if you prop it up you're a conservative and with a in a way that's supposed to be terrible and you know you're actually really like it you really secretly want women to be um, at home having babies or something it's just the, the steps are always very vague and don't really make any sense but that is what they think yeah is it not true also that the gay rights movement have given it a huge amount of legitimacy yes in a way that would be impossible otherwise i mean that's that's again so shocking that i don't know that people can get their heads around it but stonewall which is the biggest and very influential LGBT charity and lobbying group in the UK. You know, I can't underestimate how powerful they are, relatively speaking, because they have this brilliant reputation from past glories, and they have they are in nearly every national institution and government departments. They have these schemes, these sort of HR schemes, that means that they have big connections with universities and schools and all the rest of it. And they have redefined lesbians to include males. You know, they say on their website, you know, that a trans woman can be a lesbian. And remember that a trans woman, to be a trans woman, you just have to be a male who says, I'm a woman. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to take hormones or surgery or anything like that. Well, that's that's the other key thing that we're talking about here, because yeah. it seems to me that if I got up in the morning and said I'm a woman and then at noon decided I was a man and, and at three o'clock decided that I was genderqueer, transmasculine, <laughs> or concepts that are almost impossible to understand, they're so absurdly complex mm-hmm. it wouldn't mean anything i'd still be the same person and if the only de- the only way to define who is trans and who is not is simply self-declaration mm-hmm. then there is no limiting principle it seems to me at all no there isn't that that, that <laughs> there isn't and, and, and if there is no limiting principle you've abolished all distinction between the sexes overnight right i mean amazingly they're, 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 yes and yet <laughs> and yet women still kick keep getting beaten up by men or you know beaten in races but yes we're not supposed to talk about that anymore and also there's this this you know savage irony that whilst we're medicalizing children we're trying to effectively the the lgbt culture is arguing that at the adult end and particularly i assume the trans woman end you know you don't have to have surgery or take hormones or even dress a particular way it's what's inside that counts well, if it was really what was inside that counted, why wouldn't we leave children to just have normal puberties? <laughs> but we don't. So there's some kind of yeah, that's a that's a, that's a really there. important point here. Look, if 
gender is entirely socially constructed, has no essential biological component, mm-hmm. then just then just why do you need to change your body? If if there is no biological aspect to being male or female, why are you giving yourself actual hormones yeah. to change your body? It seems on the one hand, they're insisting on really almost crude biological reductionism, which mm-hmm. pump ourselves full of testosterone, or abandoning it altogether and saying you can just be whatever you want. It seems to me they need to pick a side. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the incoherency in trans activism is a result of multiple pressures or multiple influences operating simultaneously. So you've got the queer theory stuff, you know, where I think most queer theorists would be skeptical of a narrative that said broke brain is in the wrong body sort of thing they would say you know butler would say that's essentialist i assume perniciously but then you've also got a much more sort of traditional less i suppose pseudo cerebral activist branch that wants to normalize this by bringing in biological arguments and or pseudo biological arguments so and those things cannot you can't square that circle it also reflects the competing interests here that are absolutely brushed over because this LGBTQ player plus is supposed to be this one homogenous group. But in fact, even amongst trans people, if you just define that quite broadly, you've got you've obviously got differences between females, adolescent females or females in their early 20s and the motives for which they might want to transition or be non-binary. And then you've got, you know, I'm afraid to say autogynophilic males in midlife who are married, have kids and suddenly go, hey, I'm a woman and it's a fetish, I'm afraid to say. And that's another thing we never are allowed to say, but there is a fetish element to some aspects of being a trans woman, not all, and some are homosexual males. And there's a whole different range of backgrounds here that we just shove together, give it a noble purpose and don't get to talk about the differences that might make a difference to the people themselves, let alone us. How does someone like me, who's a gay man, who's sort of, I mean, traditionally been in favor of gay rights, of trans mm-hmm. rights? Of course I am. And not yeah. only that, but actually put my life and career on the line for a lot of it Yeah, yeah. Uh, many years ago. And, you know, was arguing for civil equality long before some of these people were born. Mm-hmm. And I am now a bigot. I am now the enemy because I am white and male and cis. And it, it's, I mean, part of me is like, well, fuck you, <laughs> right? I'm out. Yeah. And I am out. I am no longer, I do not consider myself now anymore a supporter or a member of the LGBTQIA plus whatever mm. 2S XYZ community, whatever that means, because I regard it as an entirely uh, invented political ideological construction designed to obscure the reality beneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when I hear when I hear polls of LGBTQ people, I'm like, well, yeah. who are these people? Like straight. it makes a difference, <laughs> right? You that's right. A lot of them are straight. I mean that's a, I know. another they're a middle thing. Aged, they're a middle aged woman who dyes her hair green. I know. I know. And a lot of those and at some, <laughs> Um, and yeah. let me let me tell you something else. Let me. I'm venting now. Mm, please <laughs> do. Stopping. It's very cathartic. But this this term non-binary. Mm. What on earth can it mean? Right. Well, because uh, let's yeah. say you're you don't fit the binary, but you have to. If if the if you're non-binary, you are conceding there is a binary. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, right? that's your your so kind what? of. It's a very individualistic, <laughs> apolitical way of like saying I'm not in this 
fight. I'm out. I'm special. You know, by implication, anyone who doesn't declare themselves a non-binary must be have some allegiance to the binary. I mean, if you look at you and me right. and our lives and our lifestyles and who we sleep with, you know, and what we wear and what how we think, I don't think you could say either of us are particularly, you know, there's not, you could take an, at, to take a philosophical thought experiment, you could take an atom for atom kind of replica of each of us and call that one queer. And what the hell would be the difference? It's, there is no difference, <laughs> except that we don't count because we don't, we're not prepared to use the words. And that's a very right. small difference in terms of what matters politically or socially or anything else. So I don't know what number, I mean, that's what non-binary is. And, and, and the idea is that you get oppressed for being non-binary. Like how, no one's ever really explained to me how that works. So you have to declare it. Right. Are... You can't tell by looking, you can't tell by anything you do. You look indistinguishable from someone else. So why, how are you getting oppressed? Not only that, but it seems to me to trivialize in some ways a genuinely trans experience, which is about a great deal of suffering in many ways and mm -hmm. conflict, internal conflict mm -hmm. and difficulty in which you are actually and can be discriminated against. It's what I call identity slumming. It's like, oh, I'll pretend yeah. to be trans, but I'll call myself non-binary. And, and there's a point at which it also diminishes the and trivializes the experience of gay people and lesbians who have lived lives that have been subjected to certain things, but precisely because they have been publicly yeah. one or the other. And and I'm sorry, but be calling yourself non-binary for, for a couple of weeks is, is talk about appropriation. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you, the, the contradictions here, you, you are appropriating a real life, a real human being's experience because you think it's, it's cool or fun or trendy or you you don't like gender. Or there's, there's people call it the prison of gender. I'm like, who out there in the world in history has have, have really regarded being male or being female as a prison? Well, I again, mean, that just takes us back to that crazy hubristic idea that somehow we're just sort of sexless, uh, pulse, great pulsing intelligences and, and that the material world is a boundary we have to overcome. I mean, that's just nuts. But I think the spectrum of non-binary people obviously includes lots of different backgrounds and motives. You know, there's a lot of adolescent girls in particular identifying as non-binary because it's a culturally available way to express distress, puberty at sexuality, at sexism and misogyny. So, and there's lots of gay, there's probably lots of gay boys who will call themselves non-binary because it's easier than saying I'm gay. But there's also slummers as you said or have you put it you know who are just having a laugh like middle-aged philosophy professors dyeing their hair green and changing their names all of a sudden and saying that it's she they it's some people are using it as a way to manipulate and control others by just going on about their pronouns all the time and trying to trip people up and exert control you know there's who would be, who would believe that <laughs> no it's hard this to stuff believe. can be abused or petty <laughs> Petty no, power struggles. You know, can be narcissists used can take advantage academia? of these things. Did you know? No, I mean, so I. Oh, it's shocking to me. It's absolutely <laughs> unbelievable that someone might exploit this. That, for example, the number of of, of men identifying as women in California jails has suddenly soared now right. that they can be transferred. Right. Well, that's the shock. Women's prisons. And yeah, I mean, yeah. How do we win? I mean, how do we challenge the stuff? Now, it, it, is, it is almost, there is no dissent allowed within 
the gay rights community in the U.S. I mean, really, mm. none. It's much worse here. Yeah, I, I could see that. The 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 it really is like the, the newspaper. There were no newspapers. No, I, I know. mean, we just had for the first time, mm -hmm. for the first time, ever, a New York Times article. Yeah. On a debate about puberty blockers and doing this to children. Debate. And even when the people, the transgender surgeons who have been involved in a lot of this are themselves saying, this is out of control. We've got yeah. to do something to make sure we're not over prescribing. We're not, we're giving enough attention to other mental health issues. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why, and I'm venting again now, like if you want to defend trans people, isn't it absolutely vital that you make sure you're not doing this to people who aren't. <laughs> it's going to hurt your cause, first of all, as well as hurt individual people. Mm -hmm. But if you accept, as I, I mean, I, I kind of do, and this is probably where I'm going to disagree with you, that there are genuinely traumatized trans children and trans adolescents and, and something really does need to be done for them, it's just really important to make sure we are making the right diagnosis and providing enough mental health counseling and enough support to make sure mm. that this doesn't catch up a lot of other people in it. And I, I wouldn't want to ban any puberty blockers. I, I, I can see there are cases where on an individual basis they might be the least worst option. Maybe you can't, but no, I, I can't. I, I, I'm afraid I, I can't. Well, for a start, I think yeah. that's the only kind of knowledge that, like, it's never. I don't see how you could deliver a reliable test for it because life is not mm. linear, and experiences have yet to happen, and ways of narr narratives that seem very, yeah. very pressing for you, aged fifteen, could be completely different, age fourteen, and uh, sorry, age forty. And if, insofar as people have to too regret, I don't see why they wouldn't have, you know regret about removing sex sex characteristics or acquiring others irrevocably so yeah we're just gonna have to disagree about that which is not to say that I don't think there should be there should definitely be proper mental health provision um, in the round for any child with a gender identity disorder but to 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 move to the bigger picture because I think the, the stuff about children I think eventually will get sorted out I hope and in, Amer and in England, we have the NHS and they're doing a big review at the moment of, um, of gender identity treatments or whatever for children. So there's, there's a kind of set of methodologies that can be brought in that I have some hope will prevail. What really worries me is the, is the thing you just mentioned in passing, for instance, that there are trans there are males sexual offenders in women's prisons for instance like who's going to speak for them why how are we going to get america to care about the average incarcerated woman most of whom women are in, in there for nonviolent offenses most of whom have histories of abuse and poverty and deprivation and i like because this this kind of this is a, a essentially a kind of elite idea about gender identity and it's being imposed from top down and the people that suffer most <laughs> will be people who rely on public services, women, you know, who rely on public services or who are in prison or people in rape crisis, women in rape crisis shelters, domestic violence shelters. You know, that's the, the sort of feminist architecture is being unpicked. What, what little there was is being unpicked. So I would like to know how to get America to care about that. <laughs>
I mean, I can barely, we can barely get Britain to care about that, but we at least we forced a conversation about it. You went through some pretty awful experiences at the University of Sussex over a period of time. You've spoken about it a lot in other podcasts. I've, I've, I've concentrated more on the issues because I'm, yeah, I'm fascinated by you right. as an intellectual. <laughs> um, but, and because I know you're tough and yeah. it had to be tough. But what is happening? Now, the university itself eventually kind of halfway defended you. Is that correct? Uh, the, uh, yeah, of? they came out. When, when this campaign, the last campaign, as it were, the last battle <laughs> was launched against me, which was pre pretty virulent and very public with lots of public manifestations of it, they then came out and deplored it. And eventually, when I decided to resign, so I thought my position was just untenable. They they agreed in their public statement that I had been bullied and harassed. So that was good. But generally speaking, there's a big problem in British universities, partly due to the institutional infiltration of Stonewall, who is in almost every British university in the HR departments, churning out the propaganda on behalf of self-ID. And that has just put a terrible chill over discussion. There's also in fact, universities are all in competition for each other, with each other for students. So nobody really wants to have an academic like me saying things that students don't understand or think must be bigoted. So this whole narrative is allowed to emerge at Sussex that I was a risk. I made students, trans students, unsafe. I was dangerous, you know, and I had to be stopped, basically. And that was just allowed just to by happen. Giving just because of public statements yeah, or just writing, uh, just writing, just just saying the sorts of things I've said now, and actually less, sort of slightly more ambiguously, I'd say, because I, since I left, I've felt like the monkey off my back a bit. But everything was scrutinised, and I was put through complaint, internal complaints, and there was you know, you know colleagues taking to social media to senior colleagues in some case to decry to denounce me as you said petitions and open letters my talks were protested I'd always have to get extra security when I was invited to give a talk if I was just you know why not? they set off flares around yeah. campus eventually yeah they have posters with my name on it all over campus flares graffiti stocks are transphobe stocks are bigger quit uh, fire stock they had a hundred people on campus during an open day where prospective students were coming with their parents, all of them holding banners saying what a evil witch I was. And so, yeah. <laughs> well, I think listeners will have listened to you today and probably not concluded that you're an evil witch. And <laughs> Fingers crossed. I, I admire your fortitude, your empiricism, <laughs> and your attachment to something we used to call reality and its defense. I just want to thank you for, for what you're doing, because it's, I, I have a small sense, having been a sort of slightly non-conforming homo for 30 years, of the cost, the personal cost that it can take and the, the horrible lies that are told about you and the yeah. way in which your whole life and integrity is distorted in ways that are really quite disgusting. Thank and, you. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, and, and so I offer my support and, and solidarity with you. And I, I, you will have a strong supporter here. And there are more people, I think, who are not prepared to say in public but do privately are grateful that someone mm. is advancing arguments against what seems to be sustained campaign of hysterical emotional blackmail. Mm. 
around what should be empirical yeah. and and civil debate about certain issues. And I think things are worse here than they are in the UK, because I think at least in the UK, mm. there is a real debate going on. Yeah. The, the newspapers themselves, whether you, whether you hate Free, Free Street or not, but we, we don't have... We have the Wall Street Journal, but there isn't really most of these major papers are entirely now captured yeah, by this ideology. Can you, you can't read a single piece about any of this that you can believe that, that, that it is anybody with any knowledge of the stuff will read stuff that's in the journal or the Times and, until this recent, actually rather good piece, which was kind of staggering. And just know that we're being lied to on a daily basis about almost all of this. I think that's true. So thank it, you. It hard, it's hard to believe. But it is true. It, I know it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but in this area, there is just so little reliable methodology applied. Yes, for example, they were talking about the British debate in the Washington Post, and the, and the whole thing was, "Why are the British so transphobic?" <laughs> I know. Why that was the question? Turf Island. That's what they call it. Turf Island. Turf Island. Um, and then, of course, you've seen what they did. I mean, here we are, cheeky Rowling. I mean, I mean, let's not get started on that. But <laughs> if she is. If she is the face of bigotry, then, I mean, I don't know what has fucking happened in the world. No. I mean, it, it, it's insane. It's insane. And, and similarly, you know, Dave Chappelle, however, I think he's, you know, he's, he's rude. He's wrong. He's funny. Yeah. But for funny sake, we, we need comedy. We need yeah. humor. We need, the whole point of humor is to let off steam and allow yeah. some of the stuff to be vented. And actually, and, mockery and is very powerful as well. I do think, I, you know, I've written a book trying to take the argument seriously. I've done that. I've probably reached my limit now. <laughs> From now on, I might just go for mockery because there is a point at which you think, come on, <laughs> come the fuck on. I know. Well, Chappelle, like, yes, there was a certain amount of mockery, but in fact, if you, I don't know whether you saw that comedy special. It's worth having a look at. But in the end, it was an actually incredibly moving defense mm. of a trans person. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And I also have to say this. I think most trans people I come across have a much more wide bigger sense of humor about this and actually sense of yeah. reality i completely agree and i actually wanted to say that earlier and i forgot i got distracted but i do want to say that the the, the voice being presented on behalf of the lgbt plus 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 is not that of transsexuals or mostly people who've gone through surgery i mean i do get communications regularly from trans people in the UK saying they don't stand for me this is nonsense this is not a metaphysical position or a political position I recognize so yeah there's that too so I just want to stress that as well because I think there's a tendency to homogenize and to present trans as this unified front who all think the same now how could that be true they're humans like you know all of us that not only that, but many, many trans people have grappled with these questions for a very long time. Yeah, They've thought yeah. hard about them. Yeah. And there is a variety of viewpoints. Otherwise, it's totally patriarchal. And then when, you, people. then when you think of gay men and lesbians and their actual opinions about this, if you sat them down and talked to them, mm -hmm. there would also be even greater variety yeah, of, course. Of, of views. Of and, course. But we're... Every day in the New York Times, we're told the LGBTQIA community was appalled or horrified or scared <laughs> or alarmed by this, that, or the other, as if we're some unified block. I know, it's, it's of... preposterous, as if they didn't even take a vote, you know. Do some fucking polling. Do some, just stop letting these and narcissists talk for us, basically. Crazy Exactly. Well, that also requires lesbians and gay men to actually get a spine and without you don't have you really should not be in any way hostile 
or angry or or use the tactics back, but to simply stand up for our own experience and our own identity. There's a point at which I think gay men need to sort of go rogue yeah. and start saying oh <laughs> we are same-sex attracted. You know, we, we should have some space for ourselves. Yeah. And you can't go into yeah. a gay bar now without without about a third of it being being yeah. 20 something women and it, it now it doesn't mean you're a misogynist it's like there are some space and there we have to take it on the chin and lesbians are under well it appeared to me to be under siege in this country and and uh, and it's incredibly disturbing yeah i totally um, agree and some of the most some of the most heterodox fascinating voices in all this have been from lesbians and 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 again that is such a much more diverse and interesting community than than you would you would get from the media but anyway we're, we're now yeah. we're now we're now just chit-chatting so look give my love um where are you now where do you live i live you're, in you're not in brighton anymore right? outside i say outside brighton for reasons that you might imagine i don't necessarily want people to yes. know where i live but yeah well there again you see you have somebody who is literally honestly Dish heads, listen to this. Someone has to not be candid about where they live because they are threatened mm. with harassment. This is this is this is happening, and we have to fucking stop this. Sorry, I'm I'm I, it's just not right. Yeah. And 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 I want to tell people also. I think it's doable. We and I and people say this to me. Well, when you first argued for marriage equality, it was regarded as absurd and completely impossible. And it and we did it because we actually told the truth and had balls and went out there and made our arguments. We can do this too, and we can help trans people as well, mm -hmm. as well as gay kids who are being caught up in this and who really are going to have lives of hell because of it. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Kathleen. Thank uh, you, Andrew. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're so welcome. We will see you all next week. We have really a sterling lineup again. We've been able to get some of the most really fascinating people. We have uh, anyway. I, 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 it depends on the order we run them in, so I'm not going to tell you all the names. But we'll see you next week here at the Dishcast. Thanks, Kathleen. Thank you.